So hey guys, we're back with another podcast, and today we have Sam Dolan, and if you don't know who Sam Dolan or Samuel K. Dolan is, by the end of the podcast, you're going to be like, oh my God, this is the greatest guy ever. Um, of course, I want to thank my friends over the Tombstone Epitaph. That is Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can find them at Tombstone Epitaph. Tombstone Epitaph. Dot com. And uh, it's one year for 25 bucks for a one-year subscription, uh, 45 bucks for two years, or three years for 60 Honestly, do the three years for 60 and it'll save you $15 overall, and it's just a great value. And again, you get Sam, because I know he's a contributor, and it's uh, Mark Boardman and Eric Wright. They just do a phenomenal job over there at the Epitaph. And so check them out at tombstoneepitaph.com. I also want to thank my friends at the Wild West History Association. Um, you can find them at wildwesthistory.org. Are you a member, Sam? Yes, I am. I am a member of the Wild West uh, History Association. Great, great group of uh, people, researchers, historians, authors, collectors, uh, about the nicest people you'll ever meet. Uh, they put out a great uh, publication uh, during the year with just wonderful articles written by historians who are all a lot smarter than I am. Uh, so that is a great organization to be a part of. Well, I'm glad you said that because if you would have said no, the interview would have been over. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been done. Um, and so, yeah, check them out at uh, Wild West, wildwesthistory.org. And we have the Roundup coming up in July in Rapid City. And hopefully I will see you there. Um also, if you want to find out more about Sam Dolan and what Sam has got going on, you can visit his website at www.samuelkdolan.com. And that is just like it sounds, S-A-M-U-E-L-K, the letter K, Dolan, D-O-L-A-N.com. And so check him out. He's got his books there, his comings and goings, the things he's involved with. And again, that's uh, samuelkdolan.com. So I ran through um, how I came to wanted to interview Sam was through a couple of ways. John Bosnecker, a mutual friend, he's I've never met him, but I know that uh, Samuel has. And John said, you got to buy this book called El Paso. And John, I believe, was involved in the book. And if John recommends this, I'm going to do it. I had no idea who Sam Dolan was. I went down and bought the book. I'm still reading through it. Now, when you get the book, El Paso, I'm going to warn you, uh, this is not a negative comment. It's a deep dive. So if you're looking for like a book on fluff, just fluff about El Paso, um, it, this is probably not the book. I would definitely go get it anyways, but it's a deep dive. Samuel has deeply researched with true provenance everything that happened in a period of time in El Paso in the late 1800s, um, dates, addresses, locations, exact dates, uh, exact locations of killings, murders, crossing back and forth into Mexico, um, how the formation of, of El Paso, Texas, why it became known as El Paso. Uh, it's a fantastic book and you're going to want to go get it. Also, um, a little bio about him. He's, he's an award-winning producer. Um, got huge production credits. I'm not going to go to him. You can research him, um, on Google or DuckDuckGo at Samuel K. Dolan Researcher. <clears throat> Excuse me. His production credits include work 
on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, National Geographic. He's also served as an interpretive specialist for the United States Marine Corps Company, Historical Company. Uh, he began his uh, career at age 13 on the movie Tombstone, which we're going to talk about, and Maverick. Uh, he's busy all through the 90s and 2000s, and he's doing so much stuff. And then in the middle of it, he ends up winning an Emmy for his production or being a, a producer, one of the producers, on History Channel's A Distant Shore, African Americans of D-Day. It's a History Channel special that highlights the role of African American soldiers in the Normandy invasion, which would be a whole nother podcast if he says yes to coming back. I'm, I'm going to butter him up so he'll say, yes, Mike, I'll come back. Um, and then he did some stuff with the Navajo Nation uh, police in Arizona. And then he wrote and produced a pilot of Na Navajo cops. I mean, what hasn't he done? Uh, on the weekends, I think he does auto detailing. I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure he does auto detailing. But he's on done... the weekends, I try to be a dad as much as possible. But yeah, it's a, it's a busy schedule. <laughs> Holy cow. So he's done it all. He's just a fantastic guy. Now... He's got a great story, and we're going to talk about his tombstone, but I read an article in True West Magazine. I believe it was True West Magazine. And in the very back of the magazine, they do a, an author or a historian or researcher, um, somebody that's doing amazing work in Western history. And they had him in the back, and I was like, holy crap, i got to interview this guy. Because you're born and raised in Arizona. Maybe not born, but you're. were you born here? No, I, I grew up in Arizona, and I spent um, I spent a lot of my life there, uh, growing up, and and then as an adult uh, before I had to do camp to other places to work in television. But uh, I was actually born in Essex County, Massachusetts, which is about as far east as you can get uh, in the continental United States. Uh, you know, I was born in Newburyport, which is an old maritime city. In fact, I'm named after an ancestor who died at sea. My father's family was all from, from back east. My, my grandfather uh, was a state representative there. Uh, there's a lot of history in that part of the world. I just didn't live there very long. We, uh, my mother was from out west. And so uh, at one point when I was just a little guy, we, we headed west and went to Arizona and um, that's sort of where my life began in a way. Um, a lot of the things you've talked about, I mean, Arizona was sort of the launching pad for all of that. And uh, that's, you know, Arizona has a lot to do with who I am and, and what I became. But uh, it all does start in, in New England and uh, Massachusetts and all my colonial ancestors and what have you. You, you mentioned that you're, you spent time in Sedona. And Sedona is a tourist destination as much as a Grand Canyon because people come from all over the world to come to Sedona to see the Red Rocks, to see the iconic church, um, to swim in the beautiful waters, and then the metaphysical stuff uh, that's going on. How is it growing up in Sedona? I mean, don't spend a lot of time on it, but how is it to growing up in a place where people flock to? Well, it's an interesting question, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Um because the town has changed and Big my, time. my, my folks, uh, still live there. My, my father and my stepmother is a, is a pretty well-known Western artist in that part of the world. But, you know, when we moved there, uh, initially in the 19, you know, if, if you lived in Sedona 
anytime between the late 70s, the 1980s, and into the 1990s, it still had sort of a small town sort of feel to it. And it is a beautiful place. It's still a great destination. This has changed a little bit. And some of the things you mentioned, you know, some of the metaphysical things and things, those became more popular and more of a draw as time went by. So I saw Sedona for the first time when it was like in a period of transition where it still felt like a lot of other small towns in Yavapai or Coconino County, Arizona. And, and it became something, something different in a way. Um, and it, it has changed. And of course it is a beautiful place. It was really a, a wonderful thing to, to grow up there. Uh, where I lived a lot of the time was in an area that's sort of known as Elmerville. It's kind of out side the town limits in Yavapai County and we had horses and I had access to all this wonderful national forest to uh, play in and to ride horses in it was just a great great way to grow up um and uh, but no just just a beautiful part of the world and I, I'm really blessed that I got to spend so much time there and as you're growing up because I'm gonna I know you get asked a lot about tombstone sure as as you and I'm not going to spend a lot of time because you know, it, it, whatever, but because we have so much to cover, you're growing up, you're 13 years old. How does a young kid from Sedona end up in a movie with Kurt Russell and Val Kilmer and all these wonderful people on Tombstone? Well, I'll, I'll give you a, hopefully a concise version of that story. And there's a few names I have to throw out there because there were a few people that, you know, kind of came into that. Um, in 1992, a production company called Greystone uh, Communications, which ironically was a company I went to work for as a producer years later, they came to Sedona to shoot sort of reenactment footage for a series they were doing called The Real West that was hosted by Kenny Rogers. And they needed some guys to ride and do cowboy scenes and some, some of the footage. And so an artist, a uh, well-known Western artist named Jerry Crandall, uh, who lived in Arizona at the time. He lives in Montana now. He put together uh, a group of guys, and he got my father uh, involved in that. Well, a few months later, Jerry was helping uh, Peter Shireko, who is an actor in the movie Tombstone and, and was very involved in that in that movie, put together you know uh, what became known as buckaroos, these guys that would ride in the movie Tombstone. They would be sort of the Red Sash gang, kind of ancillary members of the gang, and do a lot of other stuff. So my father got to be a part of that. And just before the movie Tombstone was supposed to start filming, so this is like May of 93, this is a little over 29 years ago, um, they had to scale back the numbers of these buckaroos. And so my father was sort of struck from the roster. Um, but a guy named Frank Costanza, who was a Montana saddle maker and a real, a real Westerner. I mean, this guy was, I mean, he was the real deal and just a, a wonderful human being. Uh, he got down to Tucson, put a good word in for my dad when they ended up needing more of these cowboys to come back. So my father kind of got rehired for the movie. And then a few weeks later, I get out of the seventh grade and I go down to Tucson to sort of hang around with my dad. It's summer break. I don't have anything else to do. And uh, Peter Shireko uh, got me hired on initially as an extra and then later as one of the buckaroos. Uh, I was 13 years old. I got to ride my own horse and carry my own 45 and wear a red sash at least a little bit. 
Um, but that was like, that's how I spent the summer vacation between the seventh and eighth grade was working with all of these, I mean, just fascinating people, legends like Harry Carey Jr. And, and, and great actors like, like the late Powers Booth, really wonderful, nice people like Bill Paxton. And so, yeah, that was, that was the adventure of my sort of childhood was getting to work on that movie with my dad. Did you have a chance to speak with the actors or were they, as soon as the scene was over, I'm in my trailer? You know, we got, we all talked quite a bit. I mean, some more than others. Uh, Kurt Russell was a, a very approachable uh, and decent guy. And I talked to him quite a bit. My first day on the movie, I end up in a two shot with Kurt Russell at the train station, the old train station at old Tucson. This was pre 1995 fire at old Tucson. So it was much like the set that you see in the John Wayne movies and in Joe kid and all those things. So we're at the train station. It's a scene where uh, Kurt gets down off the train. He first arrives in Arizona, takes his horse away from this guy that's whipping it. Yep. And while, uh, U.S. Marshal walks up to Wyatt Earp to ask him if he wants a job. Kurt turns to me, hands me the lead rope to his horse, and says, "Easy on the grain, Butch." And he gives me a silver dollar. Oh, I, I have that. a two shot with Kurt Russell, and that was my first day of working in the film and television business. And I mean, that was just great. I said, "Wow, this is this is great. This is a lot of fun." I mean, the sky's the limit, right? <laughs> and um, so I got to meet Sam Elliott that day and Bill Paxton. And uh, all so many of the other actors that were there, and they were all just wonderful people. I mean, Sam Elliott is as close as it gets to people any more like uh, Ben Johnson or John Wayne or Randolph Scott. I mean, he's a real Western movie legend, right? And and that was already pretty well established in the early '90s. So he's my hero. I get to meet Sam Elliott on my first day of working on this movie. And I was there for like probably the next oh, 12 weeks, really all the way up to the moment the movie wrapped. And so, you know, you get to know some of these people and some were, you know, more approachable than others. And actors all have different processes, uh, you know, but for the most part, you get to know just about everybody during that length of time on a project. And uh, it was great. It was challenging, but it was great. <laughs> that, is, that is so freaking crazy. I, I love that. If you guys don't know, we're talking to Samuel. Uh, do, do you go by Samuel or Sam? My friends just call me Sam. I use that Samuel as just an acknowledgement of my ancestors and the old family name. And uh, but now everybody that knows me just calls me Sam, and that's all fine. right. So I'm talking. To, we're, we we're talking to Sam Dolan. You can find out more about Sam at SamuelKDolan.com. Uh, he's an author of several books. El Paso, which is the one that I have. Cowboys and Gangsters, and I hope when he's all done with this, he'll say, yeah, I want to come back. He's got a new book coming out with a tentative date, a release date of September 22 called The Line Riders, and that's Prohibition and Liquor War Along the Rio Grande, and I, that one's going to be an amazing book. I can't wait for it to come out, and again, that is, has a release date, a tentative release date of September 2022, and you can find it at Amazon and booksellers near you. When you completed the movie Tombstone, then you just became this everyday kid, which you were an everyday kid. When your friends saw the movie Tombstone, were they like, what? Where were you gone? Why didn't you say something? What was that like? <laughs> 
I probably didn't disguise it that much, so I don't think it was too big of a surprise at that point. Oh. But because um, you know, I was a kid, I was pretty proud of the fact that that was how I spent my summer vacation. If I'm honest, uh, no, I mean it was it was kind of a thing, I guess, uh, amongst my you know my friends in school. I mean, it was a thing that I had done, and uh, kind of in a in a sort of way known for because I also did Maverick. Right. Uh, worked on Maverick that same year. My my dad had been James Garner's double when they were shooting in northern Arizona and in Utah. And so I I I worked on that for maybe a couple of weeks altogether and uh one episode of the uh Young Indiana Jones Chronicles about that same time. So by the time I I got to high school I'd worked on, you know, three or four features and T V show and maybe a commercial or two. And I, at that point, I I decided that I wanted to do something in film and television uh, in my life. I wasn't sure quite, you know, what that would be. Maybe I'd be an actor. Uh, I tried that for a while. Um, I did a little bit of everything. But, yeah, I mean, by the time I was in high school, I kind of had my heart set on this line of work. So since you had your heart set on it, how? What was the next transition? What was the next move going forward? Did you go to college? Did you go to a film school, or did, or was the entertainment industry? Since you've already been in it, was it just a natural segue for you to get out of high school and just continue on? Like, explain that because that kind of sets us up into. At some point, you said to your wife or family, "I want to write a book." Sure. Yeah. So when I got out of high school. Um, I went to work pretty quickly for a man named Jack Bartlett and Jack had written episodes of the Gunsmoke series. And, uh, he had a, he and his son, Kyle, they owned a production company in the Phoenix area. And so I, I moved to Scottsdale. Um, and during the day I would work at this production company. It was called Laredo productions. And I worked there for you know, probably about three years. And uh, I would go to school uh, at Scottsdale Community College, which had you know, a really good film program. I imagine it, it still does. Um, and I went to school there at night most of the time. I had some day classes, but went to school at night. I worked in TV during the day, went to school at night. And then, you know, on weekends, I, you know, I tried what a lot of film students try to do. You know, I'm going to write a screenplay this weekend or all these sort of abortive and aspirational projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent, you know, all together, I spent, you know, a few years in the, in the Phoenix, you know, area, uh, consistently and then off and on and I would commute, but eventually had to, had to eventually make that transition to Los Angeles, uh, initially sort of on a part-time basis. And I eventually moved there, uh, because at the time it was hard to get steady work in film and TV outside of LA or, or New York. So I, I'll make, I'll, I'll sort of you know, kind of tighten this sort of chronology up for you. So I go to Los Angeles. I eventually made my way into uh, Greystone Communications, uh, which is that same company that, that did the Real West all those years earlier that hired my dad, led to the whole Tombstone thing. Um, so I went to work at Greystone Communications, and that's where I became a producer, uh, working with uh, some really wonderful peers and friends who were, who were great mentors to me. And uh, did a lot of World War II shows and uh, an Old West series called uh, Wild West Tech uh, with both Keith and David Carradine. They were the hosts at different times. 
And uh, that's how my producing uh, career uh, began. And I worked for some other companies there in L.A. as well. But I did a lot of documentaries, uh, a lot of sort of, re- you know, reenactment heavy documentaries where you have both sort of archival footage and interviews. And then also you try to do battle scenes and things kind of in a, on a low budget kind of way. Um, and uh, just had great experiences and, and eventually had opportunities to write shows. And that's how I essentially became a, a writer was, was writing, you know, episodes of series like Battle 360 about USS Enterprise and World War II, uh, for History Channel and, and shows like that. And, and, uh, you know, time goes by. And for me, I, I kind of get over that period of my life where, oh, I want to write a screenplay because still everybody always wants to do that. You go to film school, you want to write a screenplay and, and do that whole thing. And, you know, you're just constantly hitting your head against the wall, trying to come up with ideas. I was always, like, interested in telling, like, true stories, you know, like, what's the next Tombstone going to be? And those are really hard movies to write or even make or get sold. And eventually I'm like, well, just, there are these interesting stories I just really want to tell that they're they're less well known. They're 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 uh, they involve characters that aren't household names like Billy the Kid, Wyatt Earp. And how do I do that? And fortunately, I had met John Bosnecker uh, working on Wild West Tech, and he especially was was a huge mentor and friend to me. And he kind of coached me along. Uh, and I, I had other writer friends that would look at drafts of book proposals because I'm like, I want to actually write a book about some of this stuff. And that's how the whole Cowboys and Gangsters book came to be, was me just trying to take stories that you just can't make TV shows out of <laughs> and and try to include them in a book. And some of them were stories that were somewhat known, at least in the Southwest, and, and some were lesser known. Uh, stories, incidents involving lawmen and outlaws in a kind of a later period of time. Um, and yeah, thanks to John Bosnecker and, and so many other wonderful, uh, mentors, uh, you know, eventually took a book proposal to Two Dot. Um, and they publish a lot of great Western books and they basically gave me my start. And, uh, now I've just recently finished up my third book for Two Dot. Uh, and they've just been wonderful folks to, to work with. I, I've got to go way, way back though. I sure. want to go way back. Go as far back as you'd like. <laughs> okay. I want to go back in an earlier, before we go forward, because I'm intrigued by it like crazy. You did a series called the history on the history channel called battle 360. Yes, sir. Is that you narrating it? Not narrating it. Cause I think it's Brian Cranston, but there was a shot of a young man sitting there talking about the bombs coming down out of the planes as the American pilots were flying. Correct. Is flying over. Yeah, America. I, Is I that was an you? occasional interviewee in some of those shows, uh, usually not episodes that I would write because it's sort of weird to interview yourself. Um, but I would uh, occasionally be uh, sort of a, a talking head uh, interview for some of those shows. I, at that point, I had become a member of the U.S. Marine Corps Historical Company, wow. and uh, I was one of the you know one of the civilian uh, sort of like an interpretive specialist. And you do a lot of research, and 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 we would go down and and help set up uh, displays for like the Iwo Jima reunion dinner and things like that. So. Uh, I would occasionally do interviews on certain World War II topics. 
uh, naval and, and, you know, things in particular. I mean, my grandfather had been in the, in the Pacific as a sailor during World War II and just had a sort of a, a love and affinity for those things. And so, yeah, that, You'll, if you look at Battle 360 from all those years ago, you'll, you'll occasionally see a somewhat younger, well, considerably younger version. I was going to say, don't say somewhat younger. <laughs> That's already been about 15 <laughs> years ago. Um, talking about, uh, you know, I think I'm interviewed in the Battle of Leyte Gulf at one point, and a couple of other, uh, couple of other episodes, but that show was a favorite of mine personally. And then a lot of my colleagues in the office, uh, Ryan Hurst, who's a great producer and Brian Thompson, and another great producer who's a friend of mine and, 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 and was a great mentor. You know, we, we got to interview all of these sailors and members of the Marine detachment and pilots. And I'm talking pilots that fought it, you know, that flew at midway. You know, that helped sink the Japanese carriers at Midway, uh, legendary, you know, uh, pilots, wow. uh, members of the air groups that flew in the Pacific uh, that were, you know, in the air battles around Guadalcanal, which were, you know, uh, in- incredibly terrifying battles um, and so many other incidents. I mean, and, and to sit and visit with these uh, these wonderful people. Uh, and you know that at that point, you know, many of these gents were in their 90s. Um, and, you know, we just we, there was this realization, obviously, that this generation was uh, was, you know, slipping away with just the passage of time. And so there was an urgency to setting up these interviews and getting these stories. And it was such an experience to 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 sit with these veterans uh, for several hours usually at a time and 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 get them to open up and tell you their stories and some of these stories were uh they were incredible stories uh stories of heroism uh humorous stories funny things that just happen uh, among people in the service uh very uh tragic stories at times. I mean, things that you hear and they stay with you because somebody imparts something like that. They share a thing with you, uh, what it was like to bury shipmates at sea Mm -hmm. after a battle, like the battle at the Eastern Solomons or the Santa Cruz Island or, um, or Midway. And, um, you just never forget something like that. And, uh, you know, my my grandfather, had fought in World War II as a young sailor on a cruiser, sort of towards the end of the Pacific War, and so I, I, I felt uh, it was that show. like a kindred uh, spirit was meeting these these mm. these veterans. I mean, I'm, we we interviewed Swede Vedaza, uh, admiral, you know, retired admiral. Swede mm. Vedaza, by the time by like the fall of 1942, he was already an ace. And as I recall, in October 1942, in one battle, he, I think he accounted for, you know, four or five or maybe even six, uh, Japanese aircraft as a pilot, as a fighter pilot. Mm. Um, just, and to sit in that man's room with his whole family, his, his children who were all adults, his grandchildren, his great grandchildren, and, and just hear those stories. I mean, it was just incredible. It was just a wonderful experience, just a real highlight of my life. Then, and that's, I, I honestly, if I had the chance 
to do that. It's probably how I honestly how I am now. I'm staring at the phone, listening to your stories, and it's it's amazing. You you did a series for the History Channel. You were the producer, and we spoke about it in a pre-interview called "The Distant Shore: African Americans of D-Day." I've two things. Yeah. That story, and I and I watched. And if you guys want to see it, you can go on on YouTube and literally type in "Distant Shore African American D Day," and you'll see his work, which is insane in every aspect. Because then you won an Emmy, and I've never spoken to an Emmy winner. And do you like have it in the house and walk by and go? Hey, buddy, you know, and or do you sometimes sit in the living room at night at one in the morning and put them on the coffee table and watch that? I mean, what is it like to win an Emmy, and what do you do with it? Well, that's a that's a that's a really interesting question. <laughs> um, well, yeah, the the special, a distant shore, African Americans of D Day. It was a it was a really well, it was a really special program to be a part of. Um, it was produced by Flight Thirty Three Productions, which was a company I worked for at the time. Uh, I was a producer on the show. Uh, Douglas Cohen uh, was the executive producer and and, and wrote uh, the special. Um, and there were, there were a good number of other people that were involved in the show that, that came together to tell a, uh, well, a really important story about African American servicemen, uh, in, you know, one of the most pivotal, you know, battles of World War II, the invasion of Normandy. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was great. I mean, it was a really wonderful experience to be a part of something like that and, and pull up this footage that was really, you know, rare and hard to come by and, um, set up interviews with, with veterans that, you know, in the 1990s and the early 2000s, there were a lot of World War II documentaries and many of these veterans had never been interviewed before or had been interviewed perhaps very rarely. And so it was a great opportunity for them to tell their stories as well. And, um, you know, and then, of course, we were nominated for Emmys. I mean, just to be nominated for an Emmy was just nothing I had ever expected because, you know, I grew up in Arizona and lived in Elmerville outside of Sedona. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't think I would get an Emmy nomination. So that was a big deal. And then in September of 2008, we, we won. Um, for I think it was a, under the category of best long form documentary mm-hmm. at the uh, at the news and uh, news and documentary Emmys in uh, in New York, so it was a big deal to to go to New York City and go to the Lincoln Center and and Bob Schieffer from CBS I think maybe announced the awards or at least gave a talk before I mean he shook our hands. Wow, and it was all sort of like a blur because it was sort of surreal to stand on that stage and um. You know, and, and look at that statue and, and, uh, I have it in my house. You know, it, it becomes part of your career in a sense. It becomes the kind of thing that you, that you, that you put on your resume. Um, but at the same time, I don't have it out where, where people really see it that often. I, you know, uh, it's here in my, my home office. Um, I, uh, I don't hide the fact that I've, I've got it, but, um, when I look at it and I'm looking at it right now, 
uh, I'm proud of, I'm proud of receiving it, but I have to remember how it all came to be. Right. And, uh, what I mostly think about were the fine young men that, uh, landed at Omaha and Utah beach on June 6th, 1944. And, um, that, that is the, uh, the, the sort of gravity of it. And, um, one thing I was really sort of proud to be a part of, I don't want to take credit for it in a way, but, um, I think it was about a year after the Emmys. Um, I talked to, to a man. He himself was, uh, I, I believe, a retired uh, officer. And uh, he helped sponsor American veterans uh, to receive the Legion of Honor from the French government uh, for their services uh, in, uh, in France or in France, French territories during World War II. And one of our uh, veterans from a distant shore, um, was a Coast Guard veteran and his name was John Noble Roberts. And John Noble Roberts was a steward's mate aboard LCIL 93, which was a transport vessel. It was one of these, one of the many, 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 uh, ships and vessels that was carrying, uh, American infantry, uh, to Omaha Beach on D-Day. And this vessel, uh, was struck by, uh, enemy artillery fire. And John lost his leg on D-Day. And uh, I think it was an 88-millimeter shell passed through the bulkhead and exploded underneath him. And it took, I believe it was his right leg and uh, at, off at the knee. And uh, a medic, uh, you know, put a tourniquet on John. John laid on the deck. Uh, shells were still bracketing the ship. He told me it, what it was like to lay there and seawater was splashing on him while he was laying there. And... Um, he recovered. Um, of course, he'd lost his leg. Uh, he had a long life. He had a very wonderful family. Um, so I was uh, asked to recommend, you know, hey, is there somebody that you would like to help sponsor for the Legion of Honor that's here in California that, that's a veteran? And, and so John, John was that person. And um, a packet was put together, and John was invited to a ceremony at the uh, French uh, consulate in Los Angeles. I got to go. And um, it was a really special moment uh, for John in his life and for his his family to be there uh, with the, the French consulate at the residence there, I think in Beverly Hills. And all these other veterans are there. Uh, Medal of Honor recipients like Walter Ehlers from the 1st Infantry Division and, and members of the uh, – the Nisei, the, the, the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, all these really fascinating men are there, and John was among them. And it was a, a wonderful tribute to John to, uh, to receive this, uh, this acknowledgement of his service in liberating France, and, and officers from the Coast Guard were there. Uh, it was just great. When I look at the Emmy Award, I think of people like John Noble Roberts, who, uh, who gave a lot for our country uh, in that... Uh, massive uh crusade to help save liberal democracy for the modern world and uh, that's what i think about when i look at that statue wow that's an amazing story that's phenomenal if, if you're wondering who we're talking to we're talking to sam dolan you can find out more about sam dolan at samuelkdolan.com was there a point in your career after this was going on because you're still actively involved in film and television. Yes. That you 
said to yourself, or maybe you and your wife or, or colleagues, and you said, um, I, this going to make it sound so stupid when I'm going to say it. And don't, don't say, yeah, Mike, that's stupid. Um, <laughs> where you were going through this period and you're, you're working successful and Emmy, you're doing this, you're the Emmy then put you in demand with other people. Cause all of a sudden you became somebody that people took, take notice of, or took notice of offers, things are coming at you. People want you involved. And yet still you said, I want to write Western history. I think that you were probably always in your mind, in the back of your mind, always loving it and you were reading it. And then John Bosnecker and other people coming in and out of your life. But there was a still a time to when you said, I want to get involved in Western history. I want to be a researcher. I want to write. I want to tell a story. What, what happened to where El Paso came about? Well, I'm not an academic. That's a great question, by the way. It's not at all a stupid question. I, I am. Uh, I'm not an academic historian. You know, I, I went to film school. I've I worked in, in TV as a documentary producer for a lot of my life, and um, and yeah, I, I think that it was a point of like, well, I enjoy writing. I enjoy actually enjoy writing, and I and I like research, and um, and I love stories. And, um, I wanted to tell stories and, and when you just like telling stories, you're, you're looking for an outlet to tell a story. And, um, it may come as no surprise. It's really hard to sit down at a desk and write like a feature length Western movie th that you can then take somewhere and hope that it gets made, you know, that, uh, through some miracle that script will become an actual movie and, and so you're looking for ways to, to have something to, to, to contribute maybe and create a thing and learn while you're doing it. Cause I'm no great historian and I, and I, and I still consider myself a student. I'm, I am a student of people like John Bosnecker and Chuck, Chuck Parsons and Bob Alexander and so many others. And, and, uh, and, and yet I, I wanted to, to be a part of that somehow and, and maybe, maybe find some stories that hadn't been highlighted as often as, as certain other stories. And uh, that's how that all kind of coalesced. I was in my, I guess it's already been about 10 years uh, when I started writing Cowboys and Gangsters. Uh, El Paso was sort of an outgrowth of that. And indeed the line riders is still sort of an outgrowth of that. I feel like I've been kind of working on maybe one biggish book for, you know, maybe almost a decade now. Um, and uh, it, it came about, as I mentioned, with a lot of support and suggestions and advice and, and, and no short amount of patience uh, on behalf of John Bosnecker and just as a mentor. Um, and, uh, you know, I put together a book proposal, which is kind of like writing a small book. Um, got a lot of notes from agents and friends and I had to make some corrections and still doing research and figuring out what some of the stories were going to be and you know, looking for court records and personnel files and things like that. And, uh, my first book, Cowboys and Gangsters came out over six years ago. Um, El Paso came out almost about, almost two years ago, I guess. Um, and that was just sort of an outgrowth. It involved historical figures that I had started researching that were lawmen in El Paso, Texas. Um, you know, whose careers spanned basically the late 19th century into the early 20th century, 
so for me, El Paso is is kind of like really connected to to cowboys and gangsters. It has a lot of the same people in it, in a sense. Um, and uh, it just it just fascinated by the stories. I mean, El Paso, Texas, is one of the most historical cities uh, in North America. Um, it is a and I have a I have a real fondness for for El Paso and the people there. Uh, many of them, I, you know, I've gotten to know, uh, you know people at the special collections at uh, University of Texas at El Paso and the Border Heritage Center at the El Paso Public Library. I mean, just these wonderful people that have been so helpful over the years, uh, folks at the Border Patrol Museum. And there's so many stories in El Paso. And, and it's not just one story. I mean, the story of El Paso, Texas, is the story of the native peoples of the Southwest and the Spanish and uh, Mexico and the United States and this, this crossroads of culture um, and, and so many other things. And it's just a, such a wonderful story in history. Obviously, in El Paso, I kind of talk about kind of the darker parts of the city's history. Uh, I deal with, with crime in that book. And there was a significant amount of crime in El Paso between the 1880s and the early 20th century. And why was that? Well, a lot of things uh, sort of contribute to that. Um, it was a uh, sort of a remote, uh, isolated community on the international boundary as of the late 1870s. Uh, Paso del Norte, which became Juarez, was really more kind of the center of gravity. It was an older sister of El Paso uh, with its own rich history. And the El Paso on the other side of the river was, you know, it was kind of an outpost. It, it had gone by different names uh, at different times. And, um, and in the late 1870s and the early 1880s, it experienced a boom. And a lot of that was driven by the arrival of first the Southern Pacific Railroad and then the Santa Fe and then other uh, railroads that all converged there. Uh, and uh, as a result, it became a huge draw for commerce and trade and transportation. And it's a, the kind of setting where you also had a thriving uh, red light district uh, and a lot of gambling and many, many saloons. And just as in any other Western town that has those elements, it attracts uh, a variety of people, a very colorful cast of uh, saloon keepers and brothel madams and outlaws and gunmen and gamblers. And, of course, lawmen who are called upon to bring order to places like that. Um, and so from the 1880s onward, uh, El Paso became a real destination for a variety of people including some of the most famous gunmen uh, and outlaws in the history of the West. Of course, John Wesley Harden probably being the premier among them, but quite a few others as well. And so as a result, it was a place where things happened. Uh, there was a lot of violence in uh, El Paso. Um, you know, there was a lot of violence in places like Dodge City and Jimstone and, and Deadwood, but I would say that in El Paso, that trend of sort of gunfighters and lawlessness it, it went on for a long time um so there's a lot of reasons for that uh and there's just so many stories uh of course there are famous people like john wesley harden that are covered in in el paso and there are many many lesser known uh, figures so it offered an opportunity 
to explore violence in the Victorian West, not just traditional violence, you know, gunfighters versus gunfighters or lawmen versus outlaws, et cetera, but um, violence that occurs uh, among other uh, groups of people. Um, there are incidents of domestic violence that lead to homicide in this book. Um, there are suicides. Um, there are things that are not often a part of the popular uh, version of the outlaw West. And I'm not the only one that's ever done that. There, there are great historians that have, that have delved into those topics. But in terms of uh, the El Paso story, those were places I kind of wanted to go. So in this book, I, I try to tell a, a variety of, of different types of stories. Because you mentioned, and I'm going to get it wrong. I know I will, and you can correct me. Do you know Peter Brand? He corrects me all the time, and I love him for it. I do. I've never met Peter Brand, but of course, I, I know. I know who he is. He's another one of these just you know wonderful historians that can, you know contributes so much to the study of all of this. Well, I love him. He's and he comes on my podcast, and we talk all the time. And when we don't talk, I I miss talking to him. Um, there was a mention in your book, and it, and it. And I tried to find it because I went to El Paso about a month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. I was so excited because I do air conditioning for a living. And they said, hey, we need you to go to El Paso and look at this job. Oh, my God. Thank you. And I, <laughs> I, this is no lie. I got into the truck. I got to my hotel um, and then got over the Concordia Cemetery and saw John Wesley Harden's grave. And there, but what I didn't have time for was there was in your book about a, about a lawman, I believe, that was killed in a canyon. And now that canyon is named after him. And most of the people, do you remember that part? Yeah, you're, you're, uh, I think you're referring to Charles Fusselman. Well, yes, Fusselman uh, Canyon. Yeah, Fusselman was, had been a, uh, a member of the Texas Rangers. Uh, he'd been, I believe, uh, first sergeant uh, in Company D uh, under Frank Jones. And, uh, he then became a deputy United States marshal. And, uh, he was a deputy United States marshal there for the, the Western District. So he spent a lot of time in West Texas. And, um, in 1890, uh, he was killed in a shootout, um, in the hills, you know, just above, uh, Franklin Mountains, just above El Paso. And that area now bears his name, you know, Fusselman Canyon. And there's a highway that kind of cuts through sure uh, that area. Mm -hmm. And, um, and yeah, and you, and you can kind of go up there and, and get a sense of the terrain, which obviously hasn't changed all that much. And you know, I think on a, on a certain sort of day, you can get a real feel for what, what occurred there. You know, El Paso is a, is a modern city. It, it's been one of those, those cities in America that, that grows and it changes and it renews itself and it, you know, and it keeps, you know, evolving. And so, you know, you, you can't really walk the streets of El Paso and, and, and see the El Paso of John Wesley Harden or even Charles Fusselman, but you can kind of find places that still you just feel that kind of connection. And that area is, uh, is one of them. And, and Fussel, yeah, Fusselman was killed in a shootout, uh, in 1890. Uh, years went by in terms of, uh, members of that particular gang, uh, being apprehended and, uh, tried for uh, Fusselman's murder. Uh, one was eventually uh, hanged uh, in El Paso County about a decade afterwards. 
Um, but yeah, Charles, Charles Fusselman, he met with a pretty sudden and tragic end up there. Well, we have about, about five minutes. It goes by fast. <laughs> it sure does. I did a lot of talking. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. So you're doing exactly what I want. And you have a, you have a great speaking voice. I think you should be in, you should get your Emmy and talk about your Emmy because I would come see it. Um, <laughs> we have about five minutes. I really, you have a new book coming out. I'm hoping you'll come back when the book releases and I read it and then we can do it. I'm hoping you'll say yes. The book is called The Line Writers. Comes out and releases tentative date of September 2022. Prohibition and liquor war along the Rio Grande. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Sure. Um, it was a book that I started doing research for way back when I was working on Cowboys and Gangsters. In fact, I, I, I sort of go over a few incidents that were in my, my first book and then a lot more. But The Line Riders is essentially about the officers of both the Immigration Services Border Patrol uh, and the Customs Service um, during the Prohibition era. And in the old days, you know, pre-Prohibition, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, you know, the federal lawmen, especially among the Customs Service on the border, were often referred to as line riders, or river guards, or river riders, things like that. Um, but this is the precursor to, you know, the modern, you know, uh, Customs Border Patrol. And uh, the focus of this book, The Line Riders, is on the Prohibition era. I talk a little bit about, you know, things from an earlier period of time. But the main focus is on the Prohibition era uh, along the Rio Grande in Texas and also on the border in Arizona, New Mexico, and a little bit of California uh, material in there as well. Um, obviously, Prohibition uh, was a, a very chaotic and violent time throughout the United States. Um, on the uh, U.S.-Mexico border, it was uh, it was incredibly violent. There were many, many uh, gunfights between federal lawmen and smugglers uh, on the international boundary. Many of those happened in and around El Paso, Texas. That was a, a big area for liquor smuggling during Prohibition. And that is uh, essentially what the book is about. It, it tells the stories of uh, these officers um, and uh, the incidents that they were involved in uh, during the 1920s and 30s. Wow. I can't wait for it to come out. Because it's, it, is John involved in that one? Well, um, John has been a mentor to me uh, for a long time. Uh, obviously, I, I I pick John's brain a lot with ideas and things. And, and, and he's been, you know, he's been a good friend through all, all through this time. Um, as, as of other historians, I mean, when you, when you do this stuff, you get to meet a lot of great, right. uh, people, um, historians, uh, you know, members of the Wild West History Association and others, uh, a historian uh, named Joseph Banco, who's been writing a, a sort of a big multi-volume history of the border patrol. Um, you know, he was, uh, you know, a friend while working on this book. Uh, you just, you just get to meet so many wonderful people and you learn a lot from other writers and other historians and it just becomes part of your on your ongoing education as you keep as you keep doing this i mean you're never and i think john has said this and others have said it you're you're never probably going to be the person that writes the definitive history of one of these incidents in the old west 
the best you can hope to do is, is make your contribution and, and keep telling these stories to keep them alive and, and, and keep learning and, and keep getting, and in my case, keep getting better as a writer, I hope, and, uh, and as, a, as a student of all of this. And so I've been so blessed to, to have friends like John and meet so many other uh, wonderful authors and historians. I love it. Well, again, we're talking to Sam Dolan. You can find him at uh, www.samuel, S-A-M-U-E-L, Samuel K, the letter K, Dolan.com. You'll find uh, some information there. When you check in, there'll be a spot for contact on his website. And if you want to leave a comment or a message or if you have a question, um, you can go ahead and fill that part out and somebody will get back to you. It may not be him. It may be somebody in his team will get back to you. <clears throat> of course, I want to thank the WW, uh, I've lost my train of thought. I'm so enamored. Oh, Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. And uh, you want to join them because they're a fantastic group. And if honestly, and I tell this, if it wasn't for the WWHA, I would not have Sam on the phone because the WWHA has opened up a lot of doors for me uh, to interview amazing people, including Bob Bozbell and Marshall Trimble and John and Peter Brand and Mark Boardman. And it just has opened up a ton of doors for me. And, and they can open up your doors to open up doors for you if you're thinking about writing a book or becoming an historian or researcher. And you can do so at wildwesthistory.org. Also, Mark Boardman over at the Tombstone Epitaph. You can become a, a subscriber and join the Tombstone Epitaph. Arizona's longest running newspaper will be delivered right to your door. Also, uh, uh, my charity that we promote here is St. Mary's Food Bank here in uh, Phoenix. Uh, they operate all over the state of Arizona. They're primarily in Maricopa County. But find a food bank near you because a, like a dollar on average will feed seven people. $20 is 140 people fed or make seven meals for a family. And so there is right now we're in June 2020, uh, The recession is here. Prices are high. Fuel is skyrocketing. And people tend not to get nutritious meals and eat properly when they're trying to pay, buy for gas or rent or overhead or utilities or whatever it is. So go ahead and donate. If you got 20 bucks, donate to the food bank because, uh, man, they're doing some great stuff and they're an amazing charity, especially here in Phoenix. And that's St. Mary's Food Bank. Um, again, you want to, uh, I appreciate Sam for being here. Uh, we got just a couple of minutes, just a couple, two minutes. Anything that you want to wrap up? Anything you well, want no, to say? I'm really glad that you mentioned the Tombstone Epitaph. Uh, Mark Boardman and Eric Wright have, have been really wonderful to me and have allowed me to contribute occasionally to that. And that's right. I, I second what you said there. It's just a great publication uh, for people to subscribe to. Um, wonderful historians and authors uh, contribute to that uh, every month. Uh, every month they, they, they turn out a great edition, just wonderful stories, often lesser known uh, events as well, which is, is great. Uh, obviously, True West is still a great uh, publication to um, subscribe to. And I'm glad you've mentioned uh, the Wild West History Association. Because going back to what I said before, uh, it's just a group of really marvelous historians uh, much smarter people than me. <laughs> and, um, and, and those are the kinds of folks that, they, that 
you find in this life as mentors that you that you learn from, um, and it, they they turn out a great publication as well. Well, I appreciate you saying that, and I'm glad you remember. And Mark Boardman and the Epitaph folks are a huge part of my podcast. Mark was actually one of the first; he was the first person to say yes. You're the 31st podcast, which means we've got 31 hours of Western history to listen to. And Mark was the first one to say yes. Hey, you want to do a podcast? Sure. Like I was shocked <laughs> that he said yes. Um, but I, I, that's why we do the shout outs because he is, uh, he's a big force in Western history and, uh, he's such a cool guy and he's a pastor in Poplar Grove, Indiana, I think. And he's just doing God's work and he's just an amazing guy. So until yeah, wonderful next, person. Yeah. So until next time, uh, be great humans and safe travels and we'll see you soon.